Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. I'm Bryce. And today we're going to do the book of James. Uh, the, we're getting done. We're kind of getting towards the end, Bryce. Coming to the end of the New Testament. But that's okay, because that means the Book of Mormon's coming up, and that's thrilling. That'll be good. So, we did this a few weeks ago with, oh my gosh, if I had five minutes, what would what would I do? What would I say to a group of people if I had five minutes? Or if I'm with my family and, I, and I'm like, okay, five minutes in this text. I want to lead with that today, Bryce. I want to ask you this question. Okay. If you had five or six minutes, and you were teaching the whole Book of James... What would you say? What, what, what do you think is the most important? James is a book about practical religion. The, his whole point is be a doer, not a hearer. If you, you know, be a practical religion, I think the point is that if our religion isn't changing our behavior and making us more like Christ, then it's not doing what it should. Um, I think w- coming to understand doctrine and having doctrinal discussions and going to church sometimes can become the end in a, of itself. And the whole book of James is about make your religion practical. Pure religion, undefiled, is making people happy, blessing lives. And so make sure that your religion is changing your life. It's making you into a doer, a kinder, gentler, more Christ-like person because of the doctrine that you're pursuing. So it's not just a, a mental assent, a belief of, hey, I believe in Jesus, but it's, I believe, therefore what? There, therefore I do. I act. I, I, I become like him. Um, we often in the church use the word convert. And we use it inappropriately, you know, sometimes. Uh, a convert is someone who joins the church beyond the age of eight. Oh, he converted. He's a convert. And that's fine. I think there's a lot of truth to the using it that way. But if you ask a scientist, if you ask a chemist, what does it mean to convert something? They'll say it's to change it into something else. To change it from what it was into something else. An egg converts into a bird. And there's a dramatic change. And what we're trying to be converted into are Christ's, like Jesus. We're trying to become little Jesuses. And so when in the Last Supper, when Jesus says to Peter, at the pinnacle of his life with him, he says, Peter, Satan desires to have thee, but I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail thee not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Which would suggest this process of conversion is changing us into something. And I think, Mike, it's pretty obvious what that something is. We're supposed to be little versions of Christ. Okay. And we're converting into Jesus, which means we are taking care of the poor and doing the things that Jesus so famously did. Okay, I like that. And faith is religion and action. James is inviting us, hey, let's do something about this. If this Jesus really is who he says he is, what are we going to do? What would be some verses that you would read to say, okay, here's James in a nutshell. What would you, what would you take out? Well, of I would probably just that very first chapter where he says, be ye therefore doers of the word, not hearers only. Meaning, let this, let, let this religion, everything we study in the gospel, let it prompt you to action. Become a doer. Do the things. Verse 22, James 1, 22, be doers. Be doers of the word. Good. 
And then he also says in the next chapter, no, same chapter, verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue. But I think we could do more than just bridle not its tongue. I mean, it's all of those actions. If he seemed to be religious, but he doesn't act like Christ, You're doing it wrong. he deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. And then he gives us that definition in 27, pure religion and undefiled before the God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their afflictions and to keep himself unspotted from the world. It's doing the things, not just talking about them. It's going to church and committing to a change. Not just going to church so I can say something really intelligent in gospel doctrine and people will notice how brilliant I am. It's changing me. I like I like that reading of whenever you read scripture, is there an invitation? If the author was sitting with you while you're listening to his words or her words, or if you're reading their words, what invitation would they make? And I think somehow when we engage in the scriptures, we're saying to the heavens, we're saying to Heavenly Father, okay, what do I what can I do? How can I how can I apply this in my life? Because and I think this is the beauty of Scripture. We have a colleague who uses the phrase perpetual relevance. Scripture has perpetual relevance because every time we engage with it, we're changed because of time, because of circumstance. And so we come to the text and we read it and it applies differently because we're different. And if we apply it, then we change and then we can therefore be invited to make more change. And that's the beauty is what you need to do to become more like Christ and what I need to do to be more like Christ are usually not the same thing. But you and I can study the exact same scriptures and I'm going to be motivated to make the changes I need and you're going to be motivated to make the changes you need even though they may not be the same changes. That's the beauty of scripture is to say, Lord, I'm interested in help. I'm studying this so that you help me. Now, Help me change. I like that. If I had just a minute or two to teach it, I would probably do some of that. And I would probably talk about, there's a whole chapter in here on the words that we use. There's just a bunch of them. Uh, man, what's a good verse on the words that we use? There's so many. Look in the third chapter, verse 10, or even verse 8. There's so much in here, but verse 10. Out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be. You know, how do we how do we speak? Verse 12, what kind of tree are you? I love verse 6, the tongue is a fire. Yeah. And if you think about that, controlled fire is a major blessing in our life. Oh, it yeah. cooks our food, it heats our buildings, it lights the way for us, it produces it smells that we love. Controlled fire is a tremendous blessing, but out of control fire scorches us and burns us. Um, Elder Bednar, and we'll put this in the show notes, so I'll be brief, but Elder Bednar shared a story when he was a state president, and he got a call from a sister, and she was on two telephones. On one phone, she was talking to the hospital because there was a car accident, and on the other phone, she was talking to President Bednar, and she was relaying to him that some sisters in the stake, their children had been in a car accident, and while she's on the phone with him, she hears on the other phone the nurse tell her that one of the girls didn't make it, that had died on the scene. And the woman talking to Elder Bednar learns right there on the phone that that person is her daughter. And Elder Bednar talks about how she hears the news and her immediate thought is, we need to tell these sisters in the stake about their daughters that they've been in a car accident. We need to get them this information as soon as we can. And Elder Bednar talks about how her heart went immediately to others. 
and how the words that we use matter. And there's a lot more to the story, uh, and we'll put it in the notes, but That's what right. a powerful story yeah. about how we speak and how we handle things. And, and just, this is really real religion, and I think everyone has to struggle with this. I love, it's a quote by a famous uh, leadership management fellow named Stephen Covey, and he says, if you want to retain those who are present, then honor those who are not present. Meaning, if I'm talking to Bryce and a subject comes up that involves somebody else, how am I speaking about the person that's not here? Have you ever had that experience, Bryce, when you're talking to somebody and they're just bashing somebody and you're like, what are your thoughts as they're bashing that person that's not there? Section 42 has made such a tremendous impact on my life because people don't realize that Section 42 is the law of the church. Yeah. And, you know, Joseph Smith really did symbolically come down with tablets for the Latter-day Saints. And there are a lot of thous and thou, or thou shalts and a lot of thou shalt nots in section 42. And one of the thou shalts has to do it. Thou shalt um, remember thy neighbor and do him no harm. That's, well, that's a Latter-day commandment. Thou shalt not do any harm to your neighbor. I like that. And I just think that's the spirit of James's book is don't do any harm to your neighbor, whether they're there or whether they're not. Thou shalt not do any harm to your, your brother, your neighbor. There's so much application here. It's so much an active, a vibrant text about how do we live. Yeah. And I love even James 1.5. If you don't know, ask God. That's such a practical aspect to, you know what, there are no answers you shouldn't have. Just ask Heavenly Father. Now, He may answer you in His own way, in His own time, but that's such a simple concept. If you lack wisdom, hey, ask God. He'll tell you. Use your religion to live the gospel, to be kind and be gentle. I like that. I like Elder McConkie once said, that verse got the whole restoration going. Yeah. And anybody who's ever read Joseph's history, you know this, that James 1.5 got the whole ball rolling. Destined to be one of the most influential scriptures ever written. Okay. Well, should we talk about history? Let's talk about Should we talk about authorship? Or now, Mike, there's something about who is this James? And I know this is where your expertise steps in, but who is this James? And why does that make his writings more significant? Tell us about authorship. Okay, so... James the Just, we think that the author of James, at least in history or tradition, is going to be James the Just. And James the Just is super Jewish. He is the bishop of Jerusalem. A lot of this is coming from a guy named Hegesibus. I can never say his name. I'll put it in the show notes. I'm bad at pronunciation. And Eusebius, he's a he's an early Christian historian during the time of Constantine. And they talk about him as super righteous. He's super zealous for the law. He's super Jewish. And that's why, historically, I think we've repackaged James a bunch of ways. So I'm going to go through what I, what I call three repackagings, and it comes to us from history. So here we go. First, James the Just. What's he doing? He's saving lives. And what I mean by that is there's Jews in Jerusalem, and there's some of them, <clears throat> Paul, that would kill you for following Jesus. But they're not killing these Christians because they're zealous for the law. And so, this is just through the lens of history, Bryce. Historically, James loves Jesus, knows he's the Messiah, but he's holding tightly to those 613 Torah laws because we're going to die if we don't do this. And so, he's a big deal. And the people that lived in and around Jerusalem 
loved James, and he ha- he was legendary for being so good and so Jewish and f- a follower of the law. So one reading of James 2, and this is not the modern reading, is all this stuff in James 2, if you read it, in the words of Inigo Montoya, that word, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, this stuff on works, we're talking Torah, we're talking keeping the law. James is saying, you've got to do it. Now, I understand Paul. Paul's from a totally different approach. Paul's talking to the Gentiles, and he's saying, no, you don't. Let go of the law. And these two ideas are called Jamesian and Pauline Christianity. And they're like two parallel threads that are same but different. And they're flowing in Christianity. And that's why, historically, that's why I think Martin Luther doesn't like James. Martin Luther is going to repackage James. So along comes Martin Luther, 1517. He doesn't like indulgences. He's frustrated with a lot of the things going on in Catholicism. And he says James is an epistle of straw. Because to him, it's faith alone that saves. But I think he's picking up the wrong argument. James isn't really arguing for the sacraments of Catholicism. But that's how it's been recontextualized. It's been repackaged because they're reading this stuff about works and faith and works. And so Luther's like, this is garbage. I don't like this. But And, and I'm going to give a shout out to James here. I think James is okay. And here's what I mean by that. You're trying to keep these Christians alive. Of course you're going to tell them to live these laws. It's about survival. And so James has an approach, and then Paul has an approach. He's talking to Gentiles. So there are two different schools of thought, as it were. And if you remember our Galatians podcast, Peter's kind of in the middle. And so Paul's mad at Peter because you're not Pauline enough, and Peter's being tugged by James. And we sort all this out. It takes us a few, a few centuries. But James dies about 62 AD. And when he dies, a lot of these Christians are warned. we got to get out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going down. So they flee to a place called Pella, and they take their writings with them. And if you ever read Matthew, James kind of sounds, excuse me, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew kind of sounds like James. You have Jesus saying, okay, you've heard an old time, you've got to do this. But Jesus in the book of Matthew is very much into, we've got to keep the law. We've got to do this stuff. And so these Christians that leave and they go to Pella, and then they go later to Antioch, we believe that Antioch is where there's a center of, these ideas swirling around after the destruction of the temple. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Are we Pauline? Are we Jamesian? Well, James is clearly saying in chapter 2, boy, we've got to do this stuff. And he doesn't say laws of Torah. He just says works. And so later, much later, centuries later, Christians look at James and they really struggle because are we saved by faith alone? Are we saved by works? And that's where the third level of repackaging comes, and that's the restoration. And I don't know how anybody, and Bryce, you can probably pull this out of your head, but I don't know anybody who's read the Book of Mormon and doesn't get it. That following Jesus is faith, but it's relational faith. It's a faith that requires a change in the heart, a change in action. You can probably bust out a yeah, well, ton of stuff. Where Nephi says we are saved by grace after all that we can do. Yeah, There's that balance of... You know, we do that, and we see the Savior working with people in the Book of Mormon constantly. You know, there's clearly action involved. The sons of Mosiah stand up and do everything they can to fix what they broke. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of an implied balance between faith and actions, that that version of works meaning actions. But, yeah, the Book of Mormon portrays it in a much more balanced way. So yeah. we kind of grow up with the Book of Mormon version thinking, oh, well, of course you have to act. You have to do. You have to live. 
it's not just a matter of faith alone. Yeah. A, a lot of early historians said things like this. They said, the Jews that lived in Jerusalem believed in Jesus. If they didn't see Jesus and they, they, they didn't meet him, they believed in Jesus because of James. James was so good at being good. He was so good at following the laws of Judaism that he was a pillar in his community. And everybody was like, this guy's awesome, and he's the brother of Jesus. So if he believes in Jesus, he had huge influence. And so this isn't really so much an argument in the text, but I think this is an argument from history, and it's this. If you're the kind of person that your goodness just bleeds through, people will come and say, who are you? What what faith are you? And that's the kind of guy that James was. His reputation spread far and wide. But let's not, I don't want to, I don't want to mince words. James was a Jew. He lived the law, but he loved Jesus. And it's so foreign to us because we don't, most Latter-day Saints, most Christians don't sit and think, well, there's 613 laws of Torah. I've got to know them. I've got to follow them. I've got to do them. It's so foreign to us. But think, if you're Jesus's brother, that was his world. That was that was where he lived. And so I just wanted to make that note from history and kind of show how it's in the text. Um, I want to make one more plug for a little bit nerdiness on the text, and it's this. And I've debated, do I put this in the show notes or is it just a waste of ink? But it's this. The whole book of James is James quoting uh, wisdom literature, Jewish wisdom literature that's not really read today. Some of it's in Proverbs. There's huge quotations of Proverbs, but he's quoting a lot of these oral traditions that the Jews had. This is a Jewish text, but it's superimposed with James's love of Jesus. And even at the beginning, look at James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, to the Jews and the diaspora, to the Jews and the scattering. This is a Jew writing to Jews saying, I found Jesus. And let me make my plug on that. If James was written by the brother of Jesus, then all the more, going back to that message of a practical religion. So here's a man who grew up with Jesus, who grew up with him. He he knows the teenage Jesus. He knows the early 20s Jesus. He knows the 10-year-old Jesus. He knows Jesus throughout his life. And I can't imagine the conversations they must have had as boys, especially as the Savior begins to catch the vision of who he is and what his destiny is and starts to assume that role of Messiah. I wonder the conversations that they have. So for James, James to take such a practical approach to religion is astounding, which means the Messiah that he grew up with was very much focused on taking care of people and being kind, that our religion needs to make us more Christ-like. And that's what religion seems to have been in their home. And that was, seems to be an, have been what impressed James, is that all of the talk about the plan of salvation and the gospel is not in our head. It needs to be in our heart and in our feet and in our hands and in our actions. And if we don't go out and do, then we've missed the whole point. If we're not kinder, gentler, more Christ-like people, then, as James says, our religion availeth us nothing. Um, And so it's even more astounding if James the Just wrote this book that he would take that approach, that I grew up with Jesus and I saw a very, very practical religion 
growing up, that religion was about kindness and taking care of it. And just to kind of tie that to modern day scripture, I'm fascinated that that Amulek in the Book of Mormon says something very James-ish. After this is Alma 34:28. After ye have done these things, he's talking about prayer. After ye have done all these things, if ye turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and the afflicted and impart of your substance, if ye have, if ye have to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if you do not these things, behold, your prayer is vain and availeth you nothing. You miss the whole point of religion if it's not changing you and making you into a kinder, more Christ-like person. I like that. That's good. To me, the Book of Mormon just brings so much balance to some of these arguments that for centuries Christians had. Is it faith? Is it works? Is it faith alone? What is faith? Yeah. What are works? What are we really talking about? Go read Alma 36. Yeah, that's perfect. I, Nephi, right? Yep. Nephi works like crazy, but he knows where his power comes from. Yep. And it's just so good. I, and by the way, Moroni says something similar to this, but I just love this verse. It's James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. Bryce, I can honestly say everything and anything in my life that's good is from God. Yep. I can agree. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thanks for listening.